So did everybody have a good Easter last week? I hope you all were able to go home and relax after the Easter service and have a great meal and possibly take a nap and maybe like uh, go for a nice walk. Uh, I hope you were able to do that. That's not what happened when we got home. When we got home, we had a downstairs flooded again. Isn't that crazy, y'all? This is the funniest thing. I went home last Sunday praising God in my new truck, uh, thanking God just for how he has shown up and how he is at work and how he's reaching us, renewing us, and how he's so good to us and how gracious he is and was just, it was one of those like breakthrough, break-in moments between me and God. It was fantastic. I was all by myself. I was literally driving and I had the windows open. I was being so un-Presbyterian. I might even stuck my hands out the window. I don't know what I was doing. And then I got home <laughs> and walked in and there's water everywhere. And it left just like that. That great, that great time I had with the Lord just left just like that. Crazy. Evidently, our toilet um, just kept going while we were gone. And went down and went under through the cabinets and into the kitchen, into the dining room, into the living room. And so I spent the uh, rest of the afternoon while y'all are having a great meal and snoozing and taking a nap, cleaning the house again. I just needed to say that because it's kind of therapeutic for me. I'm done with that. We can now move on. Okay, so here's the deal. Everyone here in this room, and pretty much everyone, <laughs> everyone in Waco, everyone in this country, probably everyone all over the world right now would agree with this, that massive movements of change are here. They're here. You see it, you feel it, and you don't know what to do. You know, do I, do I speak up? Uh, do I shut up? Uh, do I join up? Uh, do I fight? Uh, do I flee? Do I follow? Do I appease? A trip to Mars with Elon Musk in these days actually sounds better and better, doesn't it? The colony on Mars? I don't know about you, but I'm like, you know, he's just over there. We could go ask him. So pretty much everyone agrees today that massive movements of change are here. We know that ideologically, politically, culturally, racially, institutionally. I mean, every E-L-E-ism, everything. Relationally, we know this, right? We're all trying to wonder, you know, how do, with all these massive movements of change, how do we get along in these midst of these massive movements of change? We're even wondering, like, well, what about all the social and relational disconnection that's happened from a year over a pandemic? I mean, there are massive movements of change. Even the ground has shifted psychologically, like our mental health, right? Who are we? Who are we? What's our identity? What's our gender? What's our sexuality? Massive movements of change. What's the meaning of life? What's true? What's real? What's not? What's good? What's evil? We used to say, hey man, we just disagree, right? While we're both looking at the same thing. While we're both trying to figure out the real thing, the true thing, the good thing. But those days are gone. We don't say, hey, man, we just disagree while we look at the same thing. Now we say, let there be light. (laughs) 
I speak reality into existence. Whatever I say is good is good. Whatever I say is true is true. I speak the world into being like, like I'm, well, God. I once asked a Brown student, I said, wait, you mean the grass is no longer green? As we were both looking out his dorm room window looking at the green grass, and he said, the grass is whatever color I say it is, and I say it's orange. And I said, ah, I see. Now, this does have a funny ending because I said, ah, you know, okay, so, so then you wouldn't mind if I, if I just grabbed you right now and took you up these six flights of stairs to the top of your dorm and held you out over the ledge of your dorm, and I said, I say, gravity does not exist. I don't believe in gravity. I want to be set free from gravity. And then I just literally, I looked him right in the, air, in the eye, and I said, and then I dropped you. Massive movements of change are here, right? It's even in the church. One pastor tweeted over the Easter weekend, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear this. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Another pastor in our tradition tweeted, uh, his emphasis has changed. And like all of us, I would say, oh, what, what, what emphasis? What what. What does it change from? And the quote was, the message of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, D.A. Carson, he's one of the top exegetes in the world. He's like one of the best biblical scholars. If he writes a commentary, every pastor has it. So if you have John, you have his. If you have Matthew, you have his, right? He's just phenomenal. He says he once heard of a Mennonite leader assess his own movement in this way. This is, this is a quote from him. He says, One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed that, it, that the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel. So the first generation cherished the gospel. The second generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disavowed. It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system of some who call themselves Mennonites. Now, this guy named Dan or Dane Ortland in his, uh, what was it, Radical Grace? No, Defiant Grace. He's quoting Carson, and he says this, the gospel was first cherished, then assumed, then lost. The church is only one generation away from losing the gospel. So pretty much everybody agrees that massive movements of change are here right now. You see it, you feel it, you don't know what to do. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We are going to look at Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. All right, so let's start with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. 
And just like that, John appears. The, um, the word that Mark uses all over his gospel is immediately, 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 suddenly, 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 someone appears. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what kind of a baptism was this? This was a baptism of understanding that you're a sinner. They were confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit, immediately, there's that word again, drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would touch us even now. Would you touch me even now to speak forth your word? Would you touch all of us right now, me included, that we would hear, that we would see, that you would put us back together again? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what do we do in the middle of massive movements of change? What do we do? Well, what does Mark do? This is a great question. What does Mark do? Uh, Have you ever heard of Nero? Anybody ever heard of Nero? Okay, everybody pretty much has heard of him. Well, you know that he's not one of your nicest political leaders. Um, He was the emperor of Rome at the time that Mark was writing this gospel. He was, and I don't know what the best word to say this is, he was... A bully. There's a reason why we name our dogs Nero, not our children. He was a bully. God. His power was God. Power was his salvation. Power made him important. Power made him feel alive. It made his blood move and course through his body. So he bullied the Senate. And what he did is he would threaten them. He would blackmail them. He'd go to the press to tell lies about them. Um, He did whatever he could to get them to do what he wanted to do. And if they didn't do what he wanted to do, he was trying to find some way to remove them. Uh, He centralized all power to himself. He had this thought. He had this feeling that, I know what's right and best for everyone. He overtaxed the middle class. He confiscated the wealth of the upper class. How would, He ended up falsely accusing everybody. He ended up falsely accusing people of injustices so he could take their properties and overtax them. I'm not making this stuff up. But things got really crazy in the summer of 64. Well, what happened in the summer of 64? This is 64 AD. Rioters rioted all over Rome. And they burned the city down. They burned 10 of the 14 sections of the city down for a whole week. 
The fires raged for a whole week. No one stopped the fires. No one even attempted to stop the fires. Official reports at the time said no one dared, these are historians in that day, no one dared to fight the flames. Attempts to do so were prevented by menacing gangs. Torches, too, were openly thrown in by men crying that they acted under orders, end quote. So who were these rioters? Well, everyone in Rome believed Nero was behind it. And you'd say, well, why would Nero do such a thing? I mean, if everyone believed it, the Senate believed it, the other political leaders believed it, the common person believed it, every class in the city believed it, the rumors were rampant, everyone knew it was him. And the answer is, well, why, why would he do such a thing? Well, no one knows for sure. All we know is what he did after the fire. And what he did after the fire is he started an urban renewal project for the city. He cleared out the slums. He cleared out all low-income housing. He widened the streets. He built new parks. He instituted new environmental building codes for all new construction. So no more clay and hay. No more clay and hay. Brick and stone is the way. I made that up. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so who were the rioters? Nero said, the Christians. The Christians are evil. The Christians did it. And just like that, being a Christian became a matter of national security. Tacitus, the historian at the time from Rome, writes, first Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Their deaths, their deaths were made farcical. I had to look that up. It means laughable, silly, absurd. So what he would do is he would dress them in wild animal skins, and they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight as candles. Nero provided his gardens for this spectacle, and he exhibited displays in the circus with all these things going on with the Christians, at which he mingled in the crowd, or he stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied. For it was felt that they were being sacrificed because of one man's brutality, rather than to national security interests. End quote. Historical records along with church tradition says at this time that this is when Peter was crucified upside down. Massive movements of change are everywhere in Mark's day. So what does Mark do? He picks up his pen and he writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. What does Mark do? He does the most powerful thing he can do. He does the most cosmic thing he can do. He does what alone can change a human heart. He does what alone can change human relationships. He does alone what can change racial interactions, what alone can change a culture, what alone can change institutions, what alone can change neighborhoods. He preaches Jesus. He preaches Jesus. What do we do in the middle of massive movements 
of change. What do we do? Well, what does John the Baptist do? You know what's so startling about Mark's introduction of Jesus? If you look at it in chapter 1 we just read, did you know what's so startling about it is that there's no introduction to Jesus? Do you see it? There's no birth introduction. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. There's no Bethlehem. There's no baby in a manger. There's no shepherds. There's, there's no angels. There's not even Herod. There's none of the Advent stuff. There were no Advent sermons. There's no personal introduction. There's no lineage. There's not a genealogy like Matthew or Advent like Luke and Matthew. There's no, like, it all started with Adam, and then it went to Abraham, and then we know Moses, and then David, and eventually we get to Jesus. No genealogies, no linkage. Uh, there's, there's no past, right? There's no, like, uh, oh, he was being born, none of that. There was no, like, he wrestled with his brothers, he got straight A's in school. He always got the good kid award by the teacher. There's no current present either. Right? There's no like discussion or relational interaction or uh, something, a hobby, like he was a carpenter or the son of a carpenter. There's no introduction. There's just Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. So, how does Jesus show up in Mark? How does he like suddenly appear? Or as Mark would say, immediately he shows up. How does Jesus suddenly appear? How does he immediately show up? Look at verses 4 through 8. Look what John the Baptist is doing. He's simply preaching. He's simply speaking. He's simply voicing. He's simply crying out in the wilderness. And suddenly, Jesus shows up. It's like John calls Jesus into existence. And verse 9 happens. There he is. No introduction. Suddenly appears. Don't miss where Jesus shows up. Do you see this? Don't miss where he immediately appears. Verse 3, in the wilderness. Verse 4, in the wilderness. Verse 12, in the wilderness. Verse 13, in the wilderness. So what does John the Baptist do in the middle of massive movements of change? He preaches Jesus into the wilderness. And he shows up. He suddenly appears. And everything changes. So what do you need right now? In the wilderness of your heart, and in the wilderness of your life, and in the wilderness of your relationships, and in the wilderness of your loneliness, in the wilderness of your pain, and in the wilderness of feeling lost, and the wilderness of not knowing what to do, and in the wilderness of having this incredible, desperate feeling of being unable. What do you need? You need Jesus preaching.
preached into your wilderness. And suddenly he shows up. And suddenly he appears. And everything changes. What does our culture need? What does the church need at large? What does our neighborhoods need and our communities need? What do our city officials need? What do local, state, and federal leaders need? What does America need? What does Brazil need? What does Peru need? What does, the, what does Russia need and China need? Someone to preach Jesus into the wilderness. And suddenly he appears. And immediately he shows up. And everything changes on the spot. Just like that. So what do we do in the middle of massive movements of change? Well, what does Jesus do? So we're going to do a quick Bible riff. Do you all know what that means? A Bible riff? We're going to riff on the Bible. We are going to riff on verses 9 through 13. We are going to like sing song through 9 13. We are going to see observations 9 through 13. We're going to pull out the wonders of 9 through 13. And you're going to say, so how are you going to organize them? I'm not going to organize them. That's what a riff is. We're just going to do it. We're going to go on this text 9 through 13. Are you ready? In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So the question you got to ask, here's the riffing. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Right? In verses 4 through 8, John the Baptist is only baptizing sinners. Is Jesus a sinner? Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open. What's happening? Jesus' baptism is opening heaven. Literally, the text is saying he's tearing heaven open. He's overpowering the gates of heaven. It's almost like you can go back to Genesis and you can picture that when Adam and Eve exit the garden and this massive celestial centurion with a flaming sword stands at the entrance to paradise, It's like Jesus overcomes him. Continue with verse 10. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now I want you to think of the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Where have we heard that before? Well, we go all the way back to Genesis and remember at the first creation, the Spirit was hovering over the chaos. And creation happened. Let there be light. And the Spirit descended on the first human being, the first, the first Adam. Is this a new human being? Is this a second Adam? And a voice from heaven came saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 
Those words are what every human heart is desperate for. Doesn't matter if you go to church. Doesn't matter if you don't. Your whole life, all your relationships, the motivation behind your job, the motivation behind everything we do is we are craving, starving, searching, wanting. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What the voice says is what you are trying to find in a boyfriend. What the voice says is what you're trying to find in sex. What the voice says is what you're trying to find by not failing. What the voice says is why we resent our spouses, because they fail to give it. What the voice says is why we can't disagree and still be friends, because we feel so cosmically unloved and rejected. Let's look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Wait. The Spirit is doing this. God is driving Jesus into the wilderness. Why does God drive Jesus into the wilderness? Remember, we're riffing here. We're just asking questions. We're just making observations. We're just letting the text speak for itself, right? Well, at 13 it says, and he was in the wilderness. Okay, you've already told us that because he was driven out in the wilderness 40 days. Okay, that's new. Uh-oh, here comes the answer why he's driven out into the wilderness. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What does Jesus do in the middle of massive movements of change? What does Jesus do in the middle of massive movements of change? You know what he does? What Adam didn't do. What you and I don't do. Well, what's that preacher? What's that Mark? What's that John the Baptist? What does he do that Adam didn't do? What does he do that you and I didn't do? He obeys God. He obeys God. Even to the point of dying on the cross. For your sin and my sin. Remember John the Baptist's baptism? He was baptizing Jesus as the ultimate sinner. What does Jesus do that Adam did not do and we did not do? He actually loves God. And we're going to watch him love God throughout all of Mark. And he actually loves people. He loves you and he loves others like no one's ever been loved before. And every time he loves someone, they come back to life. And every time that he loves somebody, they hear, my beloved son, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And all of a sudden, streams of living water fill that person. What does he do that Adam didn't do? What does he do that you and I didn't do? He obeys. He loves God. He loves others. And he wins. He ends 
the wilderness ends it. And that, what Jesus does here in Mark, what Jesus does in just one, what is it, 9 through 13, four simple verses, what Jesus does in his baptism, what Jesus does in going out into the wilderness, what he does just at the very beginning of Mark changes everything. It's the only thing that will change our hearts. It's the only thing that's going to change our relationships. It's the only thing that's going to change our communities. It's the only thing that's going to change your neighbor who's a jerk. It's the only thing that's going to change Waco. What do we do in the middle of massive movements of change? Preach Jesus. Of course. Amen. Let me pray for us.